0: Again, that's Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse two. If you're looking at your pew Bible, um, that can be found on page 816. All right. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, I want to invite Minister Taylor up to preach today's sermon. Good morning, Crossbridge a joy to be here to bring God's Word with you this morning. I assure you it is a joy, though I do not typically have a big smile on my face when I come to preach. Um, I feel like our passage today is actually quite a heavy passage. Uh, I'll, I'll get into reasons why here in a moment, but I'm, I'm thankful for Minister Pat and Jeff uh, for the invitation to share the pulpit that I can come and preach, and also for their joyous nature as they preach uh, because I can be a little bit more real and a little bit more heavy with uh, the passage today as I feel it is more appropriate. Well, Christmas season is not really a very joyous season for me. And maybe that is, you know, my own experience that leads into my feeling of heaviness in this passage. I'm also thankful for the the Advent sermon series of the waiting room. As we kind of wait in this season of the already but not yet, the first Advent, but while we await for the second Advent We have God's salvation, but we look forward to the true and full realization of God's salvation. When I think of the waiting room, there's one particular memory that comes to my mind. When I was 17 on Easter Sunday, I was spending time with my sister and brother-in-law and mom over at my sister's house. And my mom got a call from my aunt that my uncle had been shot and that he was being life-flighted, from rural Ohio to a bigger hospital in Columbus uh, in order to try to save his life. My family uh, rushed to the car, rushed to the hospital, while my more extended family traveled more than an hour away to go to the hospital. Uh, when we arrived there, um, we beat the helicopter by just a little bit, my, my family, because we were local. Uh, the helicopter arrived. We didn't see my uncle from the helicopter. We he went straight into the operating room. And you know, we were waiting there for a while. Then the rest of my family waited. And we were in the waiting room eagerly waiting the news from the doctors. And as the news came out, they said, he's not going to make it. Life in the waiting room is not easy. <laughs> there is suffering and brokenness that we endure, both internally and in our own hearts, as we struggle with the ongoing effects of indwelling sin, of depression, of anxiety, other mental health issues, and there's suffering and brokenness that we endure in the world as we wait. Even John the Baptist in our passage today, the herald of the good news of Jesus' coming, was not immune to the suffering. And that's what we see today. John the Baptist faces the suffering of being in prison And he begins to doubt in that suffering. When the things in the waiting room get hard, we often doubt because we fear the bad news may come, like it did for my family. But in our passage today, we do see that Jesus reassures John the Baptist and by extension reassures us that Jesus indeed is the one whom we are waiting for in the waiting room. So throughout my sermon today, I hope to communicate this idea that Jesus is the one we are waiting for. Jesus is the one we are waiting for. As we look into this passage, would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the privilege that it is to stand upon thousands of years of history of looking at your faithfulness to your people, that we can look beyond us and look to the testimony to see that, God, indeed you are true. This life in the waiting room is hard, but God, we pray that as we look into your word today that you would meet us where we are and that you would reassure us, Jesus, that you are the one we are waiting for. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So two main things I want to point out in this passage that communicates this idea that Jesus is, in fact, the one we are waiting for. So the first thing that we see is that John the Baptist is imprisoned. Uh, In Matthew 14, it it gives the reason why. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch uh, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. Uh, He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So in other words, John the Baptist, we we see him in many other cases, but but he's speaking out against the authorities. He's speaking out and calling uh, the the authority figure out, and so he's in prison for it. Later in Matthew 14, we actually find out that, that John the Baptist is executed this very thing. Uh, And so here in our passage, as we encounter John the Baptist, he's essentially on death row. And so we see, as John the Baptist is in prisons, awaiting his execution, we see that John the Baptist actually begins to doubt. If you look in your passage, he says that, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It's easy for us to kind of like maybe skip over that or not really think about that too deeply, but John the Baptist is asking a very serious question here. He's doubting Jesus. Critical scholars, uh, the scholars who view the Bible as, as not authoritative and more as a historical document, point out that this would be an embarrassment for the early Christian witness that somebody such as a hero of the faith of John the Baptist is doubting Jesus. But here we have it. So those critical scholars actually view this passage as more authentic because it is an embarrassment that John the Baptist is doubting. But but here we see it. Uh, John the Baptist is doubting. And what we see, and, and as we reflect on that, so why is he doubting? Well, of course, he's in prison, so he's enduring suffering. But we should also think about how his doubt may have arisen because John's view, John the Baptist, may have had a different expectation for the Messiah that aligned with his experiences. Uh, in other words, John the Baptist had a di- likely had a different expectation for the Messiah than what aligned with his present suffering. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, uh, this is John the Baptist speaking. He says, "'I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry.'" he will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. John the Baptist had a very high and lofty view of the role of the Messiah. And it would be common for the Jewish expectation or the Jewish belief, and we don't know for sure if this is what John the Baptist was thinking, but we do know that it was common for the, the Jewish belief at the time, that the Messiah would be a kingly ruler who would bring back Jewish independence and liberate the Jews from Roman occupation and oppression. Uh, in Sunday school today, we were just watching a scene from The Chosen, and it was talking about Nicodemus, and you know Jesus was like, oh yeah, I've come to basically save you from sin, and Nicodemus is like, I don't need to be saved from sin, I need to be saved from taxation and, and oppression. And that very accurately kind of describes the the filling of the Jews in the first century. They're they're occupied, they're oppressed, they're heavily taxed. And so when you look at these passages of the the Messiah in the Old Testament, the thought was that the Messiah would liberate them, would create a new nation state, would establish Israel as a power once again, such as in the time of the united monarchy and David and Solomon. But what we see is that Jesus had something else in mind. Uh, And that that wasn't what was to be expected, or that wasn't the reality of it. So I want us to pause for a minute and just think about a couple lessons uh, from John's doubting. This is the only points of application that I'm going to uh, talk about today. Uh, First, I want to say that, that doubts are not always bad. Doubts are not always bad. Although the the critical scholars would look at a hero of the faith as John the Baptist, as as his doubting, and would say, oh yeah, that's an embarrassment to the early church witness, Jesus doesn't actually criticize John the Baptist for his doubts. Uh, In fact, if you look later on uh, in some of the passages, uh, later on in John chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist is actually praised for his faith, even after his doubts. So doubts are not always a bad thing, but what you do with your doubts is very important. Notice that as John the Baptist had this doubt, are you, Jesus, are you really the Messiah or shall we look for another? He voiced his doubts. He didn't let them linger and eat him alive, but he voiced his doubts, and more so than that, he went straight to Jesus as far as he could. He was in prison, so he couldn't go directly to Jesus, but he sent his disciples to Jesus. He dealt with them head on. We see that suffering, oftentimes, when life gets hard in the waiting room, we doubt in the same way that John the Baptist does. But that doubt is not always a bad thing. Romans chapter 5 reminds us to rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings ultimately because our suffering produces character and hope. And we see the same thing happen as John experiences doubt. As he dealt with it, as he went to Jesus, his faith is actually strengthened. Now, even for me, I will say as a minister, I still have doubts sometimes. And especially, you know, throughout my seminary years, I was very fascinated with this idea of a sovereign God and the reality of suffering in the world. But what I did with that, I I didn't just ignore it, but I I went and I searched and I tried to find answers to how it could be true that we have a God who is almighty and sovereign and good, but yet there is suffering and evil in the world. So let us deal with our doubts. Let us voice our doubts and go straight to Jesus. In the same way that John expected something different of the Messiah— So often, our doubts, especially when they come through suffering, are rooted in a misunderstanding of God's goodness. So frequently, our doubts arise over a misunderstanding of God's goodness or of God's promises. Put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes for a moment. Your people is oppressed by another nation, you're taxed, you're in jail. because you spoke out against the, the authority, you're on death row, <laughs> about to be executed, and, and your role was this herald of preaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, John wants this liberation. He, he wants to be set free. And, you know, if we, if we put ourselves in, God, in uh, John the Baptist's shoes, it would be a good thing for the Messiah to liberate him. It would be a good thing for John the Baptist to be set free from prison and spared of death. It would be a good thing for the Jews, for the people of God, if they would have been liberated from Roman occupation. In the same way, when we experience suffering, it would be a good thing if God delivers us from that suffering in the here and now. And we should seek that. We should ask God for that. But you know what's incredibly beautiful about this passage? And like also, it's hard. It would have been great for John to have seen what God is up to. God had such a bigger plan with the Messiah. Jesus had such a greater mission than liberating Israel. He was saving the whole world. But John never saw that. He died without seeing what the Messiah was doing, of what God was doing. Think about that. This is us in the same way. Sometimes God will save us from our sufferings, but other times we are totally unaware of what God is doing and we die unaware of what God is doing but God has a bigger plan. He's doing something more. He's doing something more. Next thing that we see in this passage is Jesus answers John the Baptist. Jesus answers John the Baptist. In, in verses 4 through 6, uh, Jesus doesn't go directly to, his, to John in prison. He doesn't visit him. That's really interesting but, but Jesus sends John's disciples back to, to give him an answer. And these verses, they're, they're really interesting. They're uh, a string of verses together from the book of Isaiah, but uh, th- there's a lot of things to it. But basically, the the idea is he's quoting these messianic passages to say that Jesus answers this doubt of saying, yes, I am the Messiah. So as we read, you know, uh, in verse four through six, I'll just read it again. It says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. These passages, you know, we may not be as familiar with the book of Isaiah or these messianic prophecies. Uh, But for John the Baptist or for contemporary Jewish scholars of Jesus' day, this would have been as clear as Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. So stringing these verses together, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one you are looking for. And so again, as John voices his doubts, as Jesus answers his doubts, we see that John the Baptist's faith grows. This is the verse I was looking for earlier. It's Matthew 11:11. Uh Jesus says, "Truly, I say to you, among those born of women there has uh, arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." Notice the encouragement that Jesus gives John is not that ju- that Jesus comes to visit him in prison. The text doesn't tell us why Jesus doesn't go, but simply says that Jesus answers John's disciples. Jesus sent a witness to bring comfort to John the Baptist in the suffering. In the same way, Jesus encourages us in our suffering. Oftentimes when we're in that moment of suffering, we want Jesus to come and send us a sign. We want him to shake the room, or we want him to deliver us From whatever it is that we're struggling with. But in so many ways, this is Jesus' encouragement to us that He is the one we're waiting for. You see, in this era of the already but not yet, we live in tension, we have comfort through the Bible. Through the Bible, proclaiming that Jesus is the one we are indeed waiting for, we see God show up in our day-to-day lives on the occasion uh, through various different ways, but we still have uncertainty because life in the waiting room is hard. Even just this morning, as we were, uh, as my wife and I were, were coming to church, uh, my wife was like, "Oh yeah, where's where this address?" Um, And and she quoted the address to me, and she said, oh, I saw on uh, the community page that somebody was shot in the head last night at this address. It was like a half mile away from our house. And, you know, just you you can reflect on what's going on in Ukraine right now, in Asia, and all over the world. The, The world is still broken. We can reflect on our own lives, just, you know, things of misunderstandings. Uh, With communication difficulties, working together of different personalities and misunderstandings to indwelling sin that just lingers on. As you know, uh, as Paul says in Romans chapter seven, that the very things that I hate, I keep on doing. Life in the waiting room is hard. Have you ever heard the song? I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Uh, It's Casting Crowns' is redone, a a modern version of it. The original poem and backstory behind this, that, that hymn, encapsulates life in the waiting room. And so I'm going to read uh, a portion of this article and uh, recite the poem. So it was written by a gentleman, Longfellow. Uh, this is It opens up talking about his son. In March 1863, 18-year-old Charles Appleton Longfellow left his family's house in Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts literally right down the road from us, right, Uh, left his home from Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a colonial mansion that had served as General Washington's headquarters in 1775 and 1776. Unbeknownst to his family, he boarded a train bound for Washington, D.C., traveling over 400 miles down the eastern seaboard in order to join President Lincoln's Union Army to fight in the Civil War. Charles, the author of the hymn, um, oh, sorry, Charles is still the son. Um, was the oldest of six children, born to Fanny Elizabeth Appleton and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is the, the author of the of the poem. Uh, the celebrated literary critic and poet. Charles had five younger siblings, a uh, brother age 17 and four sisters age, te- uh, age 13, 10, 8, and one who had died as an infant. Less than two years earlier, Charles's mother Fanny had tragically died after her dress caught on fire. Her husband Henry, awakened from a nap, tried to extinguish the flames as best as he could, first with a rug and then with his own body, but she had already suffered severe burns. She died the next morning, July 10th, 1861. And Henry Longfellow's own burns were so severe uh, that he was not able to even attend his own wife's funeral. He stopped shaving on account of the burns and grew his beard that would become associated with this image that you see on the picture behind me. At times, he feared that he would be sent to to an asylum on account of his grief. On the first day of that December, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was dining alone at his home when a telegram arrived with the news that his son had been severely wounded and accurately stating that he had been shot in the face four days earlier. On November 27, 1863, while involved in a skirmish during a battle of the mine-run campaign, Charlie had been shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade. It had traveled across his back and nicked his spine. Charlie avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. He was carried into New Hope Church in Orange County, Virginia, and then transported to the Rapidan River— Charlie's father and younger brother, Ernest, immediately set out for Washington, D.C., arriving on December 3rd. Charlie arrived by train on December 5th. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was alarmed when informed by the Army's surgeon that his son's wound was very serious and that paralysis might ensue. Three surgeons gave a more favorable report that evening, suggesting a recovery that would require him to be long in healing at least six months. On Friday, December 25th, 1863, Longfellow, as a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance in his own heart and the world he observes around him that Christmas day. This is that poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and thought how as the day had come the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent, and made forlorn the households born, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. As we read the poem, It ends beautifully with the author saying in his despair that there is no peace on earth or goodwill toward men. But the last verse says that the bells ring even louder and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The poem ends beautifully in suspense. We may think on first reading that the author is actually persuaded of the truthfulness of the last verse. But people who study this poem, I'm not an expert, actually argue more so that he probably doesn't actually believe that this is true. Or at least believes the proclamation is true. Notice that then peeled the bells more loud and deep. He doesn't proclaim this himself, but he says that the message of the Christmas carols And our suffering peals more loud and deep, proclaims more loud and deep. But it's in suspense. It's in this suspense of the same thing in the waiting room. As we live in the already but not yet of the proclamation that God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The proclamation that the wrong shall fail and the right prevail. The proclamation of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the reality of living in a broken world where suffering is still real externally and internally. This is the tension of the waiting room. This is another hymn that I want us to think about and in a moment we're going to sing this verse in response to this reality of life in the waiting room. It's not maybe a particular form of application, um, but I, I hope this can be something that as we proclaim, as, as we live in an experience of what this, this hymn says. It says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Tarry means to delay. So come, my Lord, no longer tarry, no longer delay. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Let's pray. Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, no longer tarry. Bring your promises to pass. We sit in the waiting room longing Comfort us in our longing as we wait for your second coming. We look to you and wait and pray in Jesus' name.